Luke 7, 36 through 50. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Father, whether we have come in today with full assurance of faith or with faith that is wobbling and unsure, or with faith that we think is real, but that isn't. Or if we've come in today knowing that we don't know the forgiveness of sins, we don't trust Jesus yet. However we've walked in this morning, God, I pray that by the time we finish with this passage, by the time this passage finishes with us, that we would be able to go in peace, knowing that our faith in Jesus has saved us. This is what we need today. So we ask that you would give it to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. As we work our way through these final verses of Luke, I want you to notice Luke's camera work, as it were. This story, as Luke tells it, really unfolds like a scene from a well-directed motion picture. The good doctor's lens is first trained here on the outside walls of Simon the Pharisee's beautiful house. And then he goes from face to face and from conversation to conversation, shifting the perspective constantly to make one incredibly detailed scene of an evening at dinner. But the lens, as I say, is first trained outside on the walls of Simon's house in verse 36 and Jesus entering through the front door. And then the lens 
zooms through the door and refocuses on the dining room table where Jesus and Simon and others are reclined, the food probably looking delicious, the guests being well-dressed, the conversation probably being light and easygoing, and the meal goes on as planned for several moments. But then, in verse 37, and quite unexpectedly, the camera angle changes because in through the front door of the house walks a sleazy-looking woman, interrupting the meal, bringing the conversation to a dead standstill, and spreading an awkward silence across the room. She proceeds then to break all the rules of first century etiquette. Indeed, her actions, if you just look carefully at them, would seem out of place and startling even in our own situations, wouldn't they? And to help us capture exactly how unsettling this unexpected interruption had really been, the camera angle then again shifts quickly in verse 39, this time fixing on the astonished face of the Pharisee. Simon's cheeks now bright red with embarrassment and with disgust. And then again panning out to give us a larger perspective, we see the face and hear the voice of Jesus in verses 40 and following as he engages this uneasy Pharisee in discussion. And then finally the camera pans even further and reintroduces us to the woman in verse 44. Her face, the complete opposite of Simon's, with Jesus in between the two of them making all the difference in the world. Now Luke obviously was not a cinematographer, but I suggest to you that Luke and the Holy Spirit in back of him takes us from face to face, from conversation to conversation, from camera angle to camera angle in this scene because there's something to be struck by, something important to notice, something to learn at each turn of the tripod. Each facial expression, as it were, each comment, each detail in this story is valuable and interesting and necessary for us to see. Each turn of the camera has something to teach us. And so this morning, as we walk through the passage, I want to structure my message around Luke's various camera angles. That is, the headings of the sermon are going to revolve around each shift of perspective in this brief scene. Six different angles, six different screenshots, so to speak. And so I encourage you to study them with me, noticing all the interesting details of Simon's dinner party, beginning in verse 36 with the invitation. The invitation. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. We aren't exactly sure why Simon, the Pharisee, was requesting Jesus to dine with him. Given the fact that he was a Pharisee and given the fact that most of his religious compatriots had already made up their minds about Jesus, Simon would not perhaps have been the first person that we would have expected to prepare a banquet for Jesus. Indeed, his unwelcoming actions recorded for us in verses 44 through 46 would lead us to believe that Simon wasn't exactly thrilled about having Jesus over for food in conversation. He paid Jesus none of the common courtesies that were part and parcel of polite hosting in those first century days. He gave him no water for his dusty feet, 
No kiss of welcome, no anointing oil for his head. To put it in a modern context, Simon's invitation and then hosting rudeness would be the modern equivalent, perhaps, of inviting someone over for dinner and offering them no handshake as they walk through the door. Indeed, as they reached out the right hand for the shake, you turned and walked the other way. And then also offering them no opportunity to wash their hands before dinner. And as everyone is milling about in the living room, waiting for the meal to begin, offering the people no glass of water while they wait. That's what Simon was doing. So why, if Simon apparently thought so little of Jesus, why, if he intended to snub Jesus in these ways, did he invite him over for dinner in the first place? Well, perhaps, as was often the case with men of Simon's ilk, Simon requested an audience with Jesus simply so that he might try and lay a verbal trap for him. So that he might ask him a trick question, as it were, and hope to catch him in a slip of the tongue and thereby ruin Jesus' reputation. The Pharisees were constantly doing these kinds of things, and perhaps that's what Simon had in mind on this night. It's also possible that Simon, since he was a local religious leader, had to invite Jesus over for dinner. That is, in those days, it was proper etiquette to host the traveling evangelist, the traveling rabbi in your home if you were the synagogue leader. So that though he may have done so begrudgingly, Simon perhaps virtually had to invite Jesus for dinner or risk losing face. But whatever reason Simon had for the invitation, what stands out to me in verse 36 is that Jesus accepted that Jesus given all this background, giving all that he knew about men like Simon, that Jesus actually entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table with him. That's amazing to me. For given what we've been reading in the Gospel of Luke about Jesus and about the Pharisees, this may come as a bit of surprise to us. Wasn't Jesus, verse 34, supposed to be the friend of tax collectors and sinners? Wasn't it their houses in which he was accustomed to dine? Wasn't it society's outcasts and well-known sinners in whose welfare Jesus was so keenly interested? Of course it was. But just because Jesus dined with tax collectors and sinners and had an interest in tax collectors and sinners didn't mean that he might not also dine with and have an interest in the Pharisees. A concern for irreligious sinners... A desire to seek and save irreligious sinners did not mean that Jesus couldn't at the same time seek and save religious sinners as well. In other words, Jesus was not guilty of reverse snobbery. You know what reverse snobbery is? It's when we look down our noses at people because they look down their noses at other people. Jesus didn't fall into that trap, a trap in which many of us are tempted to fall. That is, Jesus didn't join with many Christians who bristle at the idea of spending time with the legalists, with the Pharisees, with the religious folks who are set in their ways and somewhat legalistic and who sometimes tend to look down their noses at people who don't believe like themselves in every minor detail. Jesus, while recognizing the error of their position, was not too good 
to engage in discussion with people whose religious stripe was more traditionalist than it was purely biblical. Jesus wasn't afraid to sit across the table from people who wrongly emphasized rules and lists and shibboleths more than they emphasized the good news of God's forgiveness and salvation from sin. Isn't it easy when people want to argue with us about Bible translations or worship styles or whether we should drink this beverage or not, isn't it just easy to write those people off as legalists and fanatics? Isn't it easy behind their backs or maybe to their faces to call them childish names? Isn't it easy to steer clear of people like that as we would the swine flu? Of course it is. But Jesus didn't shy away from trying to win even those kinds of people. Jesus didn't just assume that men like Simon were so steeped in their misguided religious traditions, so far gone into their legalism that they couldn't be reasoned with and won to the gospel of grace. He didn't pull away from these people. But neither did he pull any punches. Instead, He accepted their invitations to dinner and he sat across the table from them, seeking to speak to them, to reason with them, to win them with grace, to gather them to himself. And so should we. So let me ask you, do you know anyone like that? Is there anyone in your life, perhaps at work, perhaps in your circle of friends, perhaps in your neighborhood, perhaps in your family? Is there anyone in your life who seems to think that his or her set of man-made rules and traditions is actually the dividing line between who is a Christian and who is not? Do you know anyone who thinks that his or her particular interpretation of a secondary Bible doctrine is the dividing line between who is a Christian and who is not? And instead of avoiding them, instead of arguing with them, instead of making fun of them, instead of sitting in judgment on their judgmentalism, have you considered sitting across the table from them, reasoning with them and wooing them to Jesus? That's what Jesus was doing, sitting across the table from Simon the Pharisee, Simon the legalist, and seeking to do him eternal good. And then the camera angle shifts, and the lens focuses in verses 37 and 38 on an unexpected guest. An unexpected guest. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. She was a sinner. And not simply in the sense that all people are sinners. No, apparently her sin was quite well known. Apparently the title a sinner was almost a nickname for her. It seems that she had a reputation around the town. Simon already knew who she was, verse 39. She was known as a sinner. She was known as an immoral person. And probably we should surmise 
that she was either a prostitute or an otherwise openly promiscuous woman. Probably, though not certainly, that's what Luke intends for us to understand. But in any any event, everyone around the town knew who this woman was. The opinion of her evidently was unvarying. She was very obviously a sinner. And yet, though the opinion of her in the town was unvarying, Luke doesn't present to us quite so uniform a picture in these verses. Yes, she was a sinner. Yes, Jesus says in verse 47 that her sins were many. But far from being merely a sinner, far from being merely a woman who sang only one immoral note, Luke actually presents this woman to us as a study in contrast. For though she was no doubt a sinner, though she had likely been a call girl, she also gives us one of the most lavish examples of worship in all the scriptures. She breaks all the social codes in order to get to Jesus. And when she gets to him, she breaks open what may have been her most valuable possession, a vial of perfume, and pours it out on Jesus' feet. It's an amazing thing. She risked embarrassment. She risked perhaps a great deal of money in order to worship Jesus. Lavish in her worship. So yes, she was a great sinner. But at the same time, she is a great sinner who met a great Savior and became a great worshiper. Notice also the stark contrast between her boldness and her humility. As I said, she broke all the social rules in order to get to Jesus. She had to get there. She was bold. She barged in on Simon's party. We can imagine how that would feel, even in our context. And then it tells us that she pulled her hair out of its bun, which was a significant cultural no-no, and she let it down in order to wipe Jesus' feet. This was boldness indeed. And then, most striking of all, she kissed Jesus' feet. Now, the reason why that is so remarkable, as you may remember from an earlier sermon, is that almost no one in Jewish culture would have ever even touched another's feet, let alone kissed them. In fact, the task of cleaning another's feet or removing the sandals from another's feet was never, ever required of a fellow Hebrew. It was reserved. These tasks were reserved only for the lowliest of foreign slaves. I'm not sure all the reasons for the taboo, but it was a very real one. No one would dare ask you to touch their feet. No one would dare touch your feet. The only person who would be relegated to such a lowly responsibility was a slave and not even a Hebrew slave, but someone from one of the pagan disgusting nations. That's why it's so arresting later on in the gospel accounts when we read that Jesus himself actually stooped down on his knees and put a towel around his waist and washed his disciples' feet. And that's why it's so amazing here in these verses that this woman not only washed Jesus' feet with her tears and with her hair, but kissed Jesus' feet with her lips. She was taking on the prerogative, the persona of a meaningless slave. She was at one and the same time incredibly bold and unbelievably humble. 
And even her tears present us with an interesting contrast. Why was she crying? Why was she weeping in verse 38? Was it because she was so ashamed of her sins? Or was it because she was so happy with Jesus' mercy? Well, verse 47 might be a hint that the answer is both. Both. Her sins, according to Jesus, in verse 47, were many. It was obvious to everyone in the town that she was a sinner. And it was certainly obvious to her. And so the tears in verse 38 were in all likelihood tears of repentance. And yet her sins, though they were many, were also, verse 47, forgiven. Meaning that the tears of repentance were surely also mingled with tears of joy. Now let me ask you. Joy and repentance at one and the same time? Almost unthinkable boldness tempered by a slave's humility? A great sinner who worships lavishly? Was this woman imbalanced? Or is she actually just a portrait of the normal Christian life? I think the answer is the latter. Isn't this how we should all be living? Aren't we all, if we are truly Christians, a study in contrasts? Aren't we all encouraged to draw near with confidence, with boldness to the throne of grace in Hebrews 4? And yet, once we get there, isn't our reaction invariably to bow low at Jesus' feet and confess that we are mere slaves? Don't we all have reason as sinners to be ashamed of ourselves? And yet, doesn't the mercy of Jesus encourage us to lay aside our shame and be lavish in our praise? And shouldn't our tears of joy always be mingled with tears of repentance? And our tears of repentance always mingled with tears of joy? For the more we have to repent of, the greater the mercy of God appears. And yet the greater the mercy of God appears, the more ungrateful and inexcusable our sin appears and the more we need to repent. Do you see? Knowing Jesus stretches the true Christian, in seemingly opposite and contradictory directions. During one and the same worship service, he finds himself both weeping over his sin and singing for joy. During one and the same prayer, she finds herself confessing great and grievous sins that have offended the Almighty, and yet she is talking on a first-name basis with God Himself. And expecting him to listen. It seems untenable and bizarre from the outside looking in. And yet, these contrasting Christian experiences and emotions, as Hanley Mool and John Piper said in their separate biographies of the great preacher Charles Simeon, these contrasting Christian experiences and emotions, weeping over our sins and yet singing for joy, confessing our sins and yet actually being able to talk to God. These contrasting experiences and emotions, quote, are not the alternating excesses of an ill-balanced mind. 
Rather, they are the two poles of a sphere of profound experience. It's not imbalance. It's not that we're waffling back and forth or bouncing from one extreme to the other. It's a sphere that is exactly the Christian life with two poles and many experiences in between. This woman's experience demonstrates that she got it. She was a real Christian. And yet, as the camera angle shifts once more, we see that Simon, on the other hand, was completely befuddled. The third camera angle then from verse 39 is an incredulous host. An incredulous host. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. That She is a sinner. Now this camera angle is inserted by Luke primarily, it seems to me, to set up the conversation that follows. So I don't want to spend too much time here, but there are a couple of points worth making. The first is simply that though Simon was speaking to himself, Jesus, as verse 40 demonstrates, knew what he was saying. Though Simon wasn't actually speaking with an audible voice, Jesus heard him. Though Simon wasn't, as some of us sometimes do, thinking out loud, Jesus knew Simon's thoughts. And I suggest to you that this was not simply because Jesus was good at reading people's facial expressions. Or because Jesus simply had a hunch that Simon, Pharisee that he was, must have been thinking these kinds of things. No, no. Luke inserts the fact that Simon was speaking to himself rather than out loud. So that we will realize that Jesus, who in verse 40 answered Simon's silent thoughts, is none other than God himself. Simon speaks to himself, not out loud, and yet Jesus answers. Reminds me of Psalm 139, verse 4, where David says to the Lord, Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. And was not Jesus here demonstrating that he is the very Lord of whom David spoke? Jesus is God himself. Luke is telling us that here. He hears our unspoken thoughts. He knows our hearts. He reads our words before they ever roll off of our tongues. And even when they don't. And that should give us pause to ask ourselves. What kinds of things he might be hearing. As he puts the spiritual stethoscope across our chests. You ever find yourself speaking to yourself like Simon the Pharisee? You ever look at that coworker or that family at KFC or that teenager walking down the sidewalk and say to yourself, I know who and what kind of person that is. Look at those tattoos. Look at the way their kids act. Look at the way he wears his pants down almost around his knees. Look at how many different men she's been with. I know what kind of person she is. Certainly not the kind that I would want to invite for dinner. You ever say those kinds of things? Now I know. You and I are just as savvy 
as Simon was. We're just as socially conscious. We would never dream of saying everything we think out loud, would we? But that doesn't prevent us from saying these things to ourselves. It doesn't prevent us from thinking some pretty pharisaical thoughts. And it doesn't prevent Jesus from hearing them either. And what does Jesus have to say to people who speak this way to themselves? Check out the next screenshot. Verses 40 through 43. I call it table talk. Table talk. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Now it's possible that Simon caught Jesus' drift right away. In other words, it's possible that Simon realized immediately where Jesus was going with this little parable and that it wasn't going to end well for him. But I think it's more likely that Simon didn't realize where Jesus was going. I think it's more likely that Simon would have heard Jesus' parable, at the outset at least, simply as the kind of dinner conversation that two religious leaders might typically have with one another. Maybe he thought Jesus was simply going to ask him a few questions. Get some advice. Jesus' question perhaps sounded to Simon like the kinds of questions that a pastor might ask me if I hosted him in my home. Knowing that we were fellow pastors, perhaps he would say something like this. I've got this fellow in my church and he is thinking about filing for bankruptcy. And it's a big decision. I'm trying to help him make the right decision and handle it in the right way. Do you mind if I bounce some questions off of you? Perhaps that's the kind of conversational interplay that Simon thought was occurring when Jesus first began to speak about two men who were in debt. Perhaps he thought that Jesus was simply going to politely bounce some religious ideas off of him. Perhaps that's exactly the way Jesus intended Simon to respond, at least initially. He didn't exactly come at Simon directly to begin with. Rather, Jesus seems to have drawn Simon into a hypothetical situation in which Simon had no personal stake and no emotional attachment and no dog in the fight, so to speak. Why? Why did Jesus come at Simon sideways like this? Well, not simply to be sideways, not to be deceitful, surely, but he did so for Simon's own good. Jesus, instead of posing Simon's particular problem to him, posed a parable that illustrated Simon's problem so that Simon, before Jesus put his finger on his own sins, might hear the parable and be able to come to an unbiased conclusion about the nature of forgiveness and love. You may remember that Nathan the prophet did the same thing for David. Instead of coming to him and saying, you stole a man's wife and then you had him killed. Repent. He told David a little story that illustrated what David had done. Drawing David in and helping David come to an unbiased conclusion. And then said, you are the man. That's what Jesus is doing. 
He tells them a parable about two money lenders, one who was forgiven much and loved much, and the other who was forgiven little and probably loved quite a bit less, so that Simon would be able to come to an unbiased conclusion about the nature of forgiveness and love. For, of course, Simon could see that the first man would be far more grateful than the second because he'd been forgiven far more. And Simon said as much in verse 43. But would he have answered the same way if Jesus had been more direct off the top? Would Simon have answered the same way if Jesus would have said something like this? Simon, I have something to say to you. Say it, teacher. Simon, there were in the same city an adulterous woman and a self-righteous Pharisee. The Pharisee tried his best to dot every I and cross every T, but he was actually a judgmental wretch and never realized how much he himself really needed to be forgiven. The adulterous woman, on the other hand, had no such scruples. She didn't care about I's and T's. No, she just wrote her immoral scribble any place she pleased. She knew all too well how bad she was. And when she thought about it for a moment or two, she knew exactly how much she needed to be forgiven. Now, Simon, God was merciful to them both. God held out the offer of forgiveness and eternal life to them both. So, Simon, which one do you think will love God more? If Jesus had spoken like that right off the top, Simon may have supposed differently than he actually did in verse 43. Simon likely would have closed his mind and heart against the obvious truth. And so he needed Jesus to tell this parable. He needed Jesus to draw him in. He needed Jesus to pose the problem first in the form of a parable so that he would be able to think clearly and come to an unbiased conclusion about the nature of forgiveness. For he was going to have a much harder time thinking clearly and coming to unbiased conclusions once the scenario ceased being about two indebted townspeople and began to be about a prostitute and a Pharisee. And Simon is, therefore, a reminder to us of how clear-headed we can often be when the need for forgiveness is someone else's, when the sin is out there, and yet how hard-hearted we can be when someone places his or her finger on our own sin, on our own need for forgiveness. Isn't it amazing how easily we can see sin and need in others? Sometimes in very good and helpful ways, we see sin and need in others very clearly. And we pray for them and we love them and we try to woo them to Jesus. But isn't it amazing how clearly we can see sin and need in others and how sometimes we can work so hard to form excuses and create loopholes when the sin is our own? Are you guilty of that? I often am. What about you? Do you make excuses for your sins? Try to find loopholes? And is the problem that you don't know right from wrong? Is it that you sit there and say to yourself, well, you know, perhaps this isn't really actually a sin after all? Or is it that like Simon 
you're quite capable of judging correctly, verse 43, so long as the need for forgiveness is out there and not in here. It's an important question, one we need to ask ourselves as we deal with our own sins. Up until this point, however, Simon wasn't making excuses. Jesus had proposed a scenario and Simon had judged correctly. But beginning in verse 44, the camera begins to pan out and bring the prostitute back into the scene. And it's about to become all too clear to Simon that Jesus hadn't actually been gauging in religious small talk. Look at me with this at this next screenshot. If Simon thought verses 40 through 43 were simply going to be about polite table talk, he was about to find himself with the tables turned. The tables turned, verses 44 through 47. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Here's the point of the parable. Indeed, here's the point of this entire passage. Simon evidently didn't love Jesus very much, if at all. He invited him to his own home and gave him no water, no kiss, no oil, no welcome. And yet this sinner, this quote-unquote sleazy woman of ill repute, could not stop showering Jesus with signs of affection and thanksgiving. Why? Well, for the same reason that the man who was forgiven two years' wages was a great deal more excited and thankful than the man who'd been forgiven two months' wages. He who is forgiven little loves little. And conversely, he or she who is forgiven much loves much. And this was exactly Simon's problem. Not that he didn't need to be forgiven. Not that he actually had been forgiven very little, but that evidently he thought he had been forgiven very little. He thought that his debt to God was actually quite small. After all, he may have said to himself, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. I'm a leader in the synagogue. I'm a leader in the nation. Surely God is actually quite pleased with me, he probably thought to himself. Maybe he's even a little bit indebted to me now that I think of it. And with thoughts like that, the idea of forgiveness seemed like small potatoes. Sure, Simon must have said to himself, God has forgiven me a few things here and there. I mean, I've made mistakes in my life. We all have. But overall, I'm a pretty good person. And people who think like that love little. People who think they've been forgiven little don't have great love for God. And so it's no wonder that Simon's love for Jesus, and perhaps some of our own, is almost non-existent. He saw no urgent need of what Jesus was offering. Salvation. Full 
and free forgiveness of sins. He saw no need of that. But the prostitute, on the other hand, she knew how wretched she was. Her sins, as Jesus tells us, were many. And so to her, the message of forgiveness was like music to her ears. It was like cold water in a weary land. It was like an oasis in a dry, cracked desert, the desert of her life. It's obvious, isn't it, why she was so lavish in her worship. So bold in her approach. So humble in her tears. She had been forgiven much. And therefore, she loved much. Now, before we go on to make application of these things to our own lives, we do need to note that verse 47 can be, indeed it has been for some people, the source of real confusion. For when you read the verse quickly and without careful attention to context and detail, it almost seems as if Jesus is saying that because the woman showed so much love toward him, She was therefore forgiven of her sins. It almost sounds in verse 47 as if her forgiveness was the result of her love for Jesus rather than, as I've been saying, the cause of it. Listen, as I just breeze through verse 47 and see if it almost doesn't give that impression. After having listed the various ways that this woman loved Jesus, washing his feet, anointing him with perfume, and so on, Jesus says of her, For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Doesn't it sound at a quick listen like Jesus forgave her for this reason, namely because she washed and kissed and anointed his feet? Doesn't it sound like that? She washed my feet. She kissed my feet. She anointed my feet. For this reason I say to you, her sins are forgiven. It almost sounds as though her sins were forgiven because of what she did. But I submit to you that the phrase, for this reason, refers not to the words, her sins have been forgiven, but to the words, I say to you. In other words, her anointing, washing, and kissing of Jesus' feet were not the reason she was actually forgiven. Rather, her anointing and washing and kissing were the reason Jesus could say she was forgiven or announce that she was forgiven. It is not for this reason her sins have been forgiven. It is for this reason I say to you her sins have been forgiven. Her actions made it obvious to Jesus and to everyone else that she had already been forgiven. And therefore, her actions enabled Jesus not to forgive her, but to say she has been forgiven. To announce to Simon, in essence, look at this woman. Look at how much she loves me. Isn't it obvious that she has experienced forgiveness of sins? So I say again, the woman's love for Jesus did not enable her sins to be forgiven. Rather, her love enabled Jesus to see and therefore announce that her sins had already been forgiven. Her love was the evidence, not the cause of her forgiveness. Some people interpret it another way, however. So why do I interpret verse 47 the way I do? Why do I believe that it was Jesus' forgiveness that enabled the woman's love rather than her love which somehow earned Jesus' forgiveness? Well, four reasons. I'll give them to you quickly. And they may be helpful to you as you sort through these things. First, 
The rest of the Bible makes it clear that forgiveness is never earned, even by our love toward God. Just one example among dozens that could be given, Titus 3.5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. He saved us, in other words, not because we kissed and anointed and washed His feet, but simply out of the overflow of His own mercy and kindness. Titus 3.5 says that is true of us, and it was true of the woman in Luke chapter 7. Secondly, I say that the woman's forgiveness was the evidence and not, or was the, excuse me, was the cause of her love rather than her love, the cause of her forgiveness because, number two, the parable in verses 41 and 42 makes it clear that our love is a response to God's forgiveness, not vice versa. The two men in the parable were forgiven merely because, verse 42, the moneylender was gracious. He graciously forgave them both. They were forgiven because of His grace. And then, having been forgiven because of His grace, their love was a response, Jesus says. Thirdly, I say to you that it was Jesus' forgiveness that enabled the woman's love rather than her love that enabled Jesus' forgiveness because according to the last clause in verse 47, our love grows in proportion to God's forgiveness, not God's forgiveness in proportion to our love. Jesus doesn't say in verse 47b, he who loves little is therefore forgiven little. Jesus does not say in verse 47b, he who loves little is therefore forgiven little. No. The relationship between love and forgiveness works the other way around. He who is forgiven little loves little. And he who is forgiven much loves much. So both in verse 47b and in verses 41 and 42, it is God's forgiveness that motivates our love, not our love that motivates God's forgiveness. Forgiveness. And fourthly, it was her love that sprung up out of Jesus' forgiveness and not Jesus' forgiveness that sprung up because of her love. Because in verse 50, Jesus told the sinful woman that her faith had saved her, not her love. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In essence, because faith is the act of receiving from something from Jesus and love is the act of giving something to Jesus, in essence, then, what verse 50 is teaching us is that it was the act of receiving something from Jesus, not giving something to Jesus, that affected this woman's forgiveness. It was her trusting in what Jesus had done for her, not what she could do for him. That saved her. We are forgiven because we trust Jesus, not because we love him. So I conclude, therefore, that what Jesus means in verse 47 is not that the sinful woman's love was the reason that her sins would now be forgiven, but simply that her love was evidence that her sins had already been forgiven. Her love, 
like a rose blossomed in the soil of Jesus' tender mercies. And like this sinful woman, says John 1 John 4.19, we too love because he first loved us. So the truth stands. Forgiveness begets love. He who is forgiven little or thinks that he's been forgiven little loves little. And conversely, he who has been forgiven much and realizes that he has been forgiven much loves much. Now, it's obvious what that meant for Simon and the adulteress. One kissed and wept and anointed. The other scowled and murmured under his breath. But what does the main point of the passage mean for you and for me? What does it mean for you and me that he who is forgiven little loves little and he who is forgiven much loves much? Let me give you a few thoughts. First, on the level of American Christian culture as a whole, I would say that I am a bit concerned that we have overlooked Luke 7:47 and verses like it. Nearly everyone, everyone agrees that Christians need to love Jesus more. You can go to almost any church in the country this morning and you won't find anyone saying we love Jesus far too much. We've gone off the deep end in our love for Jesus. No, no. All Christians agree that we need to love Jesus more. But it's strange, isn't it, how many pastors and books and conferences are attempting to achieve that right goal simply by talking about how we can love Jesus more and serve him better. While at the same time, assuming that if we always are talking about sin, we'll undercut the goal. If we're always talking about sin, people will feel beat down. And they'll be unable to rise up in love to Jesus. I had a well-meaning and godly seminary professor tell me as much not long before I came to Cincinnati. The thinking goes like this. People already know how sinful they are. So we don't need to tell them about their sin. We just need to preach encouraging messages that help them love God more. And that's halfway true. We need to preach encouraging messages that help people love God more. Well, what about the first part? People already know how sinful they are. And so we don't need to go on telling them about their sin. Is that true? Well, if he's in heaven, and I'm not sure he will be, but if he changed, if he repented, and if he's in heaven, we should ask Simon the Pharisee about that someday. Simon, you'd heard Jesus preach in person. You'd spent your whole life studying the Bible and in religious work and service. You'd been to all the synagogue services. But did you really know how sinful you are? Or did you need Jesus to put his finger on it? It's epidemic in many corners of American Christian culture to avoid the topic of sin. Not because we don't believe in it. But I think because we're often afraid that it will discourage people. And therefore, it will lessen their zeal and their love for Jesus. But if Jesus is correct in verse 47, nothing could be further from the truth. If the goal really is to help people love Jesus more, and if he who is forgiven much is the one who loves much, then we must talk about sin frequently enough and specifically enough so that people never forget how much they've been forgiven. 
Now, it's true. We don't need to talk about sin exclusively. And we must certainly never tell people how sinful they are and point out specific sins without making much of Jesus and the cross and the promise that all sin can be forgiven if taken to Jesus. We must never leave that part out. It is, after all, the reality and joy of forgiveness, Jesus says, not merely the recognition of sin that gives birth to our love. So we don't need to just get people to mope about their sin. We need to show them their sin and tell them the wonders of forgiveness. But we cannot, correct me if I'm wrong, we cannot talk very long about the wonder of forgiveness without pointing out to people the reason they need it, without helping them not just mentally say, oh yes, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness, but helping them feel that they need it, that they have to have it, that they must hear of and have Jesus. We cannot talk very long about forgiveness, which leads to joy and love for Christ, without preaching about the reason we need it, without preaching about sin. Very few people go to the doctor when they feel healthy, do they? And even if they do, they often go infrequently and begrudgingly. I have to go this Thursday. I feel healthy. I hope I look healthy. But I have to go to the doctor Thursday morning at 8.15. Only because my wife's making me. (laughs) So, I'm going. But I don't really want to go. And that's how people are with their sin, isn't it? Very few people flee to the cross of Jesus when they feel spiritually healthy, when they think they have it all together. And if people therefore think they have it all together, they won't be very often at the foot of the cross. And if they aren't very often at the foot of the cross, they won't remember that they've been forgiven much. And if they don't remember and feel that they've been forgiven much, they won't love much. And this is precisely where hordes of American Christians live their lives. Because... The churches they attend and the books they read and the conferences they frequent and their own consciences believe that focusing on sin will make us feel so bad that we won't be able to love God. But nothing, I hope your own experience at this church will confirm, nothing could be further from the truth. But enough about Christian culture in general. I'm not actually preaching this message to Christian culture. I'm preaching it to you. So how can Luke 7.47 help you? Well, do you ever struggle to love God much? I do. Do you ever struggle to read your Bible as you want? Or give as you ought? Or get here on Sunday morning when you should? Or to consider others more important than yourselves? Do you ever struggle to keep one or other of God's commandments? Do you struggle to lavish on Jesus the attention and praise that this sinful woman lavished? I'm sure you do. But why is that? Well, there may be a handful of reasons. But has it ever occurred to you, for instance, that the reason you may be struggling to love God by reading His Word may not simply be because you aren't a morning person, but because perhaps you've lost sight of just how much you've been forgiven. Has it ever occurred to you that the reason you struggle to give your money to Jesus might not merely be because times are tough right now, but because 
perhaps you haven't been thinking much lately about how much Jesus gave you at the cross? This line of questions could go on into every area of the Christian life. Why? Because our fuel for Christian living is love for Jesus. You'll never read or tithe or come or serve or obey or pray with a whole heart unless you really love Jesus. And you'll never love Jesus very much unless you are consistently reminded that your sins, which are many, verse 47, have been forgiven. For if you forget or if you ignore the fact that your sins are many, your love will dwindle and fade and dry up. If you forget or ignore the fact that your sins are many, you'll stop loving Jesus, the forgiver of your sins, and start loving yourself. That's what happens when you're not reminded and when you're not reminding yourself of how great your sin is and how much you need forgiveness and how much in Jesus you have been forgiven. So please, please don't ignore your sin. Don't be morbid in your introspection. Don't look at your sin exclusively. Don't look at your sin too long without looking to the cross of Jesus. But don't ignore your sin either. It's only as you see your sin that you'll be driven to the foot of the cross. And it's only at the foot of the cross that you will truly learn to love Jesus. To quote Charles Simeon's biography once more, his adoration of God grew best in the plowed soil of his own contrition. His adoration of God, to put it in Luke 7 kind of terms, grew best in the plowed soil of a heart that felt guilty for sin and that knew he'd been forgiven much. And oh, how I hope you believe this and put it into practice. Oh, how I hope that you are not afraid in your own life to call a spade a spade. And oh, how I hope that you find that the track between your own sinful soul and the cross of Jesus is a well-worn pathway. For he who is forgiven much loves much. If you do believe and put Luke 47 or 747 into practice, you will find great reassurance and great hope which is exactly what Jesus offered the sinful woman in the final shot of this little scene. Notice, as the camera zooms one last time, shifting away from Simon and focusing now on Jesus and the woman alone. I call this last scene a parting gift. A parting gift, verses 48 through 50. Then he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with them began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's customary at some upscale parties for the guests to receive a parting gift as a thank you for attending. But as you could probably guess, no such courtesy was forthcoming from old Simon. But you'll notice that Jesus didn't just receive the woman's worship and then send her away empty-handed. No. As a parting gift, he said to her the most memorable words that she had ever heard. Your sins have been forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now we've already noted that the woman 
had been forgiven of her sins before she ever entered the house. That's why she came in the first place. And that's why she knelt and wept and kissed and anointed. So Jesus isn't here pronouncing a fresh verdict. Your sins are forgiven. He isn't pronouncing her to be a new Christian. He is simply reassuring her of what was already true. He's reassuring her of, in verse 48 of what was already obviously true in verse 47. He's strengthening her sense of being loved by God and forgiven of all her sins. And why would he need to do that? Well, perhaps for Simon's benefit. Perhaps, though he was speaking to the woman in verses 48 through 50, he was actually trying to get Simon's attention and demonstrate to Simon that it was she and not he who was the true child of God. But perhaps also Jesus reassured the woman because she may have been tempted here and there along the pathway of her pilgrimage to doubt. It's possible, given where she'd come from, that the devil and her neighbors and men like Simon and even her own tender conscience sometimes rose up against her and made her wonder if it could actually be true that all the filth of the past had really been wiped away. It's possible that she sometimes doubted whether she could really be forgiven. And the reason I suspect that she may have doubted is because I know my own heart. And I suspect that you do as well. Do you ever doubt? Do you ever wonder if perchance your sins really aren't forgiven? Do you ever say to yourself, maybe my faith really isn't strong enough to warrant Jesus forgiving me? Do you ever say to yourself, maybe I've sinned my way past the point of no return? Maybe God is in heaven looking at me saying, look, you keep coming with these same confessions over and over and over again. You're way past 70 times 7. You've sinned your way out of grace. You've sinned your way past the point of no return. Do you ever think like that? Do you ever feel like that? I hope not. But if you do, wouldn't it be great if Jesus came and in person said to you what he said to this woman? Wouldn't it be great if Jesus came in person and said to you, your sins have been forgiven? Wouldn't that settle all doubts? If we ourselves could hear something like this straight from the lips of Jesus? Well, the truth is we can We can. Jesus doesn't just say things like this. Jesus doesn't just make promises like this to this woman. Jesus makes promises like this to whoever, to all who call upon his name. Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John 6.37 All that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Romans 10.13 Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Those are broad promises. Those are broad reassurances. And they're just as good for you as they were for the woman in Luke 7. 
And so this morning, if you're not trusting Jesus, if you haven't yet come to him weary and heavy laden, if you haven't yet called upon his name, would you not do so today? The promise is good for you. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you not call upon the name of the Lord even today? And if you do call on his name today, or if you already have, would you not take him at his word? Would you not believe that Jesus means what he says? Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Would you not take Jesus at his word? Don't worry. Be reassured. If you are trusting in Jesus, your faith has saved you. Go in peace.